Please let your voice be heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Seven, oh, pardon me, uh, seven, seven teachers from Atlanta were recently um, charged with um, racketeering and sentenced to 20 plus years for helping kids cheat on their test. So here's what happened. As we all know, standardized testing has become a very big thing, especially after No Child Left Behind. If you don't know what that is, that was a bill passed by George W. Bush and I think it's Ted Kennedy. And the idea was to put standards behind how people were supposed to perform for their in, in the schools. And they would give funding to schools that did well, and they would cut funding from schools that did not do well. The way that they would gauge how well someone was doing was by creating tests and standardized tests, so to speak. So now, all of a sudden, testing became a very huge thing to show how well kids were doing. Some places that really struggled with that were a lot of places in the South because they don't know how to read anyway. And, of course, New York and Staten Island because that is also the South of New York. And what happened was you had a lot of schools who were not passing these examinations. And they would lose funding, schools would get shut down, and teachers felt more pressure to do better. In Atlanta... What they've done, or in that section, they started to help kids cheat by giving them the answers. Mm -hmm. This way they could show that the kids were doing better. You don't have to shut down the school. You don't have to fire teachers. You can give them more funding because how do you expect someone to do better if you don't fund the schools? So if a school struggled in 2012, they cut the funding by half. And then they tell you you had to improve double, (laughs) double that. But how can you do that if you don't have the resources for it? And now these teachers, who should have gotten maybe one to three years because of this, met a judge who decided that he wanted to be the worst person in the world and charge him with racket- racketeering because there were bonuses tied behind kids doing well. So he said it was obviously a racketeering practice they were doing so they can get money from ha- having these kids do well. The teachers are saying, no, we just didn't want to lose our jobs and we helped these kids cheat. And the judge didn't want to, you know, um, sentence them as first time offenders because, like I said before, he is a horrible person who thinks teachers should spend 20 years in jail because rapists don't. Mm. Anyways. I mean, there so- are some sentencing guidelines issues that we can get into talking about if mm. you want to understand why they may have gotten such a harsh sentence, the judge notwithstanding. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it has to do with the racketeering charge and the types of mandatory guideline sentences that flow from being charged with racketeering. Yeah, from, right. From what I understand, they should have gotten one in three years. But if anything, he's the most colorful judge I've seen in years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very passionate. Very you know passionate. He's probably like, Barack Obama. I mean, you know, I, I understand. <laughs> sort of why they did what they did. Obviously, the teachers didn't want to lose their jobs. And and you shouldn't base school funding and, uh, you know, teachers' jobs necessarily on uh, standardized tests because then, you know, if people, the poorest schools already have the worst test scores and now you're taking away the funding that they really need. On the other hand, when you feed students answers, they don't learn. They just know the answers. But that doesn't mean they actually learn. In fact, they don't learn anything. And that's a big problem as well. And they also changed some of the answers on the test. My problem with the whole thing was, like Alyssa and Stanley pointed out, like, um, well, first of all, these are black educators working in a school district that wasn't doing well, was very troubled, and they were under so much pressure because of standardized testing. And then we know that the standard, the co- common core standard was even higher. Yes. And they, you know, it was they had to get, they had to do something or else they lose funding. So let me explain what you mean by common core. So common core, um, a lot of people think of Comic Core, they think of the Facebook post that their friends and family post where it's this really complicated math question where 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 2 anymore. It equals the, the answer for life, and they don't know how it got there. But the basic principle of Comic Core is that you want children to start thinking critically at an earlier age, and that when reading comprehension, you shouldn't just know that Billy went to the store to buy some chicken. You start to ask the question of, why do you think Billy went to the store 
Do you, was there a motivation behind it, et cetera, et cetera. And in the math questions, they don't, they don't want you to, to just know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. They want you to know how you got to that. So they make you break it down at its basic root to understand it. Now, when President Obama became president and he had the stimulus package for $797 million, they had over $10 billion to give in education funds. And they told every single state, we will give you a certain amount of money, but you either had to A, implement the Common Core standards, or B, create your own that we felt and match the level of it. Forty states agreed to implement the Common Core standards. And some other states, um, the last 10, came up with their own standards that the government felt was okay. Now, the Common Core standard works really well, in theory, because you should have kids thinking critically, and they shouldn't be focusing on the test. But what happened was they just kind of threw it on all, all kids. So if you had a kid who was learning one way, and now they're in fifth grade, and they're like, no, you're wrong. All of a sudden, they had to adjust right away, and that was not happening because teachers didn't get trained, students weren't prepped, and then you had these tests that were supposed to be intuitive, but they weren't because they didn't have the funding, and now kids had to pass these tests that they were totally unprepared for. What happened in Atlanta was that they got those tests, they couldn't keep up after they were failing already under George W. Bush, and they tried to find a way to get around it. Wow. Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, I don't know. I can't speak on the what's going on exactly now. I took standardized tests when I was in public school, and this was before No Child Left Behind and before Common Core. But the standardized tests weren't the – they weren't necessarily tied to the evaluation of teachers. They were not just uh, – new types of standardized tests were not implemented without any warning. I personally think that common core standards are a good idea because I do think that our children need to learn how to think critically. Uh, right now, there's a math problem going around that's a, from the Singapore Mathletes team, and it it's basically a common core math program, and almost every student in Singapore can answer that question, and most adults in the United States, adults, not yeah. even children, cannot answer it. However, I do think um, that the way in which they went about implementing the program was atrocious. atrocious problematic and definitely problematic because you can't just switch from doing a to doing b uh right away i mean you have to like ease it in i mean That's this is said. this is an example but before the show stanley and i were talking about bike riding and i said i don't ride the bike up amsterdam because it's a really high incline and it's not graded and it's very hard to go up instead i ride up convent because the incline is gradual and so it makes it a little easier to get up to the school but that's the exact same analogy when it comes to implementing common core you don't want to do it like amsterdam avenue where you're going from point zero to the top of the mountain yeah. you want to gradually grade it up like convent avenue yeah. i tried one of those common core questions and boy i was like hold on i could do this i like lost like so much like 20 like percent in confidence trying to answer this question and i just had to find the answer it's really so, that hard a, a good friend of ours crystal garner was talking about her um a, fa- a family member of hers who was doing so well in school they hit up with common core she's depressed she's crying yeah, all the time that's how i felt she's eight years old well selena you're a loser we know that <laughs> so we're not gonna focus on those things anyway no. but um before we get into Common Core, which we will, I really want to talk about this sentencing. Alyssa, okay. please explain to me how the... Well, I'm proud that they didn't shoot the black teachers because, you know, they I might look so dangerous. I so bad, and I'm like, no. they were like grandmothers. But I got to jump in here. Why, why are we associating this necessarily with being a black or African? American? It's not a racial issue. What it is is that they've tied together funding and employment with standardized testing. That's mm-hmm. the issue. Now, is there obviously some correlation between the lack of proper funding and the fact that these people are majority, if not all totally African-American. I think that the, that 
that garners more investigation, you know, more more through uh, work through. But just to say as though the judge and the system is condemning these people and hitting them with what is it? Did they hit them with a RICO charge? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a RICO charge. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah uh-huh. You <laughs> sure about what you're saying? No, no, I'm now? sure about what I'm saying. I mean, the severity of the sentencing is is questionable. But however, I think it's much more tied to the impracticality of these. Uh, programs. Jason, they hit the gym teacher with a Rico charge. Hey, Coach Mitch, they hit him with a Rico. <laughs> with Rico. Hey, I know some people personally that should be hit with Rico, yeah. but a teacher is not one of them. No, oh, you helped really pass that test with that yayo, huh? Hey, that's what they like. Horrible. Listen, explain, please. Right. Lose your so law. because they were charged with Rico, if uh, so, we should tell people. Yes, what Rico let's is. define Rico. Rico yes, is, is the Rico racketeering, influenced, and corrupt organizations act. It's a federal statute, but there's also state versions of it, uh, or state. Equivalence of and RICO was created uh, in order to combat large scale, essentially mafia operations. Because the problem was somebody like um, his name is escaping me. He was charged with IRS. That's how they finally got oh, him. Al Capone Al Capone. back in the day. So like somebody like Al Capone, it was really hard to get to him because he had all of his underlings committing a lot of these crimes for him, and they didn't always link back to him. And so the government created this thing that was called RICO was essentially a way to get people at the top in order to basically tie everybody up in a conspiracy and mm-hmm. say that, you know, you engaged in certain acts and these acts were to further uh, the conspiracy. And that was a way for them to get people way up at the top in these corrupt organizations. Uh, then states adopted RICO and came up with their own versions of the federal RICO statute. Mm-hmm. And so essentially RICO applies or is supposed to apply to like gang operations, stuff like that, where you kind of have a almost like a structure where there's somebody at the top that you really want to get. But without this type of law, you would never be able to get them because they sit in an office and they call shots, but they don't ever go out on the street and, you know, do the dirty. They made a brand new law just to get that one white man. So (laughs) look at God. They sort of did, actually. (laughs) Um, And so now this in this scenario, they were using this and they basically argued that these teachers were conspiring uh, to commit racketeering in the way that they wanted to get money from the state. And the way to get money from the state or more money from the state was that their kids were going to do well on the exams. So in order to get their kids to do well so that they could get the money, they gave the kids the answers. And so that's why they were charged under RICO, because essentially they were, you know, Doing, they were engaging in criminal acts in order to get more money that they otherwise wouldn't have deserved. Now, obviously, there's this question of efficacy on the test, which is they were concerned that they were going to lose the funding that they already had, and that's why they did it. Right. They weren't necessarily doing it to get the to get additional funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could get into a larger conversation about that. But so once RICO is triggered, then you trigger the RICO sentencing guidelines, which you have the regular sentencing guidelines for the underlying criminal acts. That's the one to three you mentioned. Yeah. But then when you're with the RICO charge, there's um, a bump up. Who's and that bump up? The RICO charge, though. Who's like, Yo, let's get well, that the RICO prosecutors. The prosecutors. The prosecutor gets to make the decision on what to charge. Always, a charging so, decision is always made by a prosecutor and or a grand jury. The prosecutor could have presented this case to a grand jury and presented potential things that these people could be charged with, and then the grand jury votes on whether or not to charge them with the RICO offense or not. But ultimately, the prosecutor still puts the potential charges in front of the grand jury and lets them vote. So the prosecutor gets to decide whether or not a RICO is well, one of the things they put in front of the grand jury. Why is your well, brain so amazing? Well, Wallace, I have, I, have a, this? I have a question about that, Alyssa, because 
it seemed like the judge was just he just wanted to make an example out of them because from my understanding prosecutors suggested one to three and then he more than doubled right and so he has that he jurisdiction has, so he that's has that what right I'm saying. to do that it's, it's a bump up so you have the initial underlying sentence for the initial crimes and then you can have the RICO bump up and in some cases the RICO bump up is mandatory there is no discretion and in other cases the RICO bump up is discretionary and I don't know specifically the law in Georgia nor my licensed attorney in Georgia so I can't really I can only speak generally about it not specifically but what I am presuming happened in this situation is that the RICO bump up was discretionary and the judge decided in his discretion that he was going to add it on wow no definitely I was a good thing that you answered all that because I was trying to figure out um, what was the sort of federal, federal jurisdiction when it came to this particular case? I mean, I know there is funding, but could you tie it that quickly together in which one could say one was evading taxes or something else I that mean, was under federal law? Essentially, uh, you're cheating the government out of money that you're okay. undeserving of, right. is the argument, is that if you would have just allowed your students to take the test as is, they would have done mediocre or poorly and therefore you wouldn't have gotten this money so by you're essentially cheating the money cheating the government out of money that you don't deserve um well and when you know one thing that the judge kept saying he kept warning them he kept saying you know what take the plea deal admit that you did something wrong apologize and take the plea and he gave even up until the last minute he was like if you don't take this plea deal then you're gonna suffer and he warned them and I think two um, two of the um, defendants actually took the plea deal last minute but the other 10 were like we are we're innocent and they they wanted to file an appeal so that's why they didn't take the plea deal so that happens a lot in criminal law it's essentially used as to put pressure on I just had this scenario come up uh, with a, a case, which is essentially the judge said, if your client takes the plea now, if your client decides to take the plea, um, then I will offer her a non-jail sentence. However, if your client decides she's not going to plea and she essentially and the judge I don't see it as a waste of the court's time because you're legally entitled under the Constitution to take your case to trial if you wanted to that but that doesn't mean they can't uh, incentivize you not to go to trial and so what the judge said in this scenario was once you proceed past this point and you decide to start doing hearings then I'm going to take that non-jail sentence off the table. And then if you get convicted, I'm going to sentence you to, you know, somewhere in the guidelines range of one year to four years. So that's another reason why that happened, which was these people were like, I'm not taking the plea. I'm going to trial. And so the judge said, "Okay, fine. You know, you basically made the court take all this time to go to trial. And so I'm now going to hit you with the bump up in order to penalize you for essentially going to trial, which is awful. And we, right. that's a criminal and justice issue that we could get into separately and apart from this issue. Right. Well, we're actually going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about standardized testing. This is all rooted in standardized testing. And we'll talk more about that right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. You didn't drop your alcohol. You're damn right I didn't drop that. What sweet, were you drinking on last night? Whiskey. And they, they lied to me. They told me it was Black Label. It was Maker's Mark. Oh, yeah. You got cheated, man. And I knew. No, it was open But bar. they were pouring it out of the Black Label yeah. bottles, which is illegal. Is that legal? No, no it's not. It's a, You can get legal. in big trouble. The, this, oh. the state will come and they will take your liquor license if you get caught doing Don't that. Don't say who did it, Stanley, because you'll get them in trouble yeah, dropping listen, dimes. I, I wasn't trying to dry snitch. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it's one thing if you're at a party at your own house and you want to be cheap and you want to fill up the, the black label bottle with the maker's mark. Do people mark. do that? But if you are running a place that you have a state liquor license and you get caught changing out the bottles like mm-hmm. that, the state will come and take your license. Oh, no. Lord Jesus God. Be careful for Alyssa. I'm going to post some uh, I don't work for the state. I, <laughs> if that happens to you, call me and I'll defend you. Okay. <laughs> we'll work so it like, out. For price, my brother. So we're back. Right price. Cool. Yeah, there's a fee for that. That's right. So, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. We're talking about Hennessy, Black Label, Whiskey, and, of course, the teachers that got 20 years for teaching too much answers while the what? kids are taking the test. That, that made almost do. no, mo- so no sense. Shut your stupid mouth, you okay? shut, Stanley, I mean, who's saying stupid things now? Well, me, but I do that for a living. <laughs> Anyways, guys, in case you were wondering, this is Stanley. We have Selena. We have Alyssa. And we have Jason, also known as Kingpin of the Brooklyn. And I would like to let you know. <laughs> Wow. Are you trying Are to you get me? Kingpin? You trying to get me hit with a Rico? You charge? see him no. snitching, right? Wow. You see him snitching on everybody. Stanley, what is Jason up? just show me his gun. <laughs> <laughs> on his waist. No. All right, guys. Well, this just gets worse and worse. This is getting worse and worse. <laughs> no, but anyways, guys, we, we you know, well, I think because they the the teachers in Atlanta got in trouble. That's why Stanley is just dropping dimes on all of us. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to get some some cash. But you money. know, here's the thing: is that we're not addressing the underlying problem, which is that students that come from poor neighborhoods don't necessarily get the resources that they need in order to succeed in school. And then we're judging teachers based on standardized tests that have been implemented rapidly that we're not gradually in, but we're not addressing the underlying problem of poverty and resources in order to get the students the training and the skills that they need in order to be able to do well on the test. So we're blaming the test, but really we should be blaming... We're blaming the teachers, you mean. Or Well, no, we're blaming the teachers and we're blaming the test and we're blaming the system. And there definitely are and potentially some problems with all those things. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to what I say all the time is we have to deal with the issue of poverty and income inequality and how that affects our school system and how that plays into race. Well, you're going to like our guests that we have on the line right now. So we have two guests on the line, but I'm going to introduce the first one first because that makes sense. And his name is Jamal Bowman, and he's an educator and school principal of the Cornerstone Academy for Social Action Middle School in the Bronx. So we yes. have a local guest this week, and I'm very excited to have him on here. And he will be talking to us and giving us his input on what's going on and his experience as a school principal. Jamal, thank you so much for calling in today. Good morning. No Good morning. problem. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. No problem. Jamal, I have to ask you a very important question. Everyone gets asked this. What is your drink of choice at brunch? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> at brunch. I hope my students aren't listening right <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. now. Yeah, stamps dropping time. Well, why would a yeah, kid I, not listen I, to the radio? Do they even know what radio is? If I'm in the mood, if I'm in the mood, I might go with uh, a martini. I'm a martini guy. Martini. Classic. Yeah, I used to make fun of martinis, and then one day I had one, and I was like, "Oh, this is just an olive and vodka. This is <laughs> <laughs> this is good." But Jamal, yeah, but I don't promote drinking like that. Let's not put that out there like that. I know, I know, you don't promote so, drinking. I don't. leave that hard, up to Stanley. Work hard, play hard. We work hard first. That's actually the topic of our second segment, isn't it, about the wage debate? We'll get back to that. That's definitely will. So, Jamal, we've been talking about these teachers in Atlanta who have been charged 20 years for helping their kids cheat on these tests because they felt pressure to have their kids perform so they would not lose the funding they had for their schools. So we've talked about the charges already. We've talked about how ridiculous they sound to us and everything else like that. What I'd like to do is switch gears now and talk about this pressure. Is this a real pressure for that teachers feel? like the need to perform as a principal of your school do you really do you feel like your teachers go through this when it comes time for test time well well not at my school i mean we we try to do a good job of just keep keep things calm keep things tranquil tranquil 
uh, the test is just a bump in the road. It's kind of something that we have to do, at least up to this point, we felt we had to do it. So the pressure uh, isn't that high in my school because it's just not the kind of culture we try to build. However, overall, I could definitely see how it's a, it's a, a huge amount of pressure in other schools because you're aligning teacher evaluation uh, to the results their students uh, receive on the exams. And there's so many questions about the exams in terms of the validity, in terms of the reliability, in terms of who created them and how much uh, how much uh, the lack of teacher voice, if you will, was involved in the creation of the test. So the, the tests are very controversial for a lot of very good reasons, and aligning them to uh, teacher evaluations and ultimately teacher jobs is why, you know, I think we have the, the anxiety, the stress, and the frustration and why teachers, you know, the teachers in Atlanta, unfortunately, did what they did. Right. So speaking of Common Core, and thanks for that, for that breakdown, I kind of wanted to speak more about the controversy. As we've been seeing just this past week, a number of students, a number of parents all across the nation have been opting out. And there's this whole opting out movement, meaning, meaning that they're purposely keeping their children home so that they don't sit in and take the test. Okay. And that's like, that's that's how they're fighting against it. I mean, they went to lawmakers, they, they went to their local legislators but now they're like we're just going to keep our students um home and up to 60 to 70 percent of some um some school districts here in new york have reported that well well 60 percent like there's been some school districts where they said that up to 60 to 70 percent of students didn't even show up and like upstate new york so i wanted to ask you long island and upstate um jamal i want to ask you about this opt-out movement what is particularly fueling it, and why and how did it become so strong this year in particular? Well, you know, like I said, because of the lack of transparency in terms of the test creation process and also how the Common Core uh, standards came to be, because of the lack of teacher voice, uh, because of the ambiguity and the developmentally inappropriateness of the exams, uh, you know, parents are pushing back and parents are standing up and they're finally saying enough is enough. Um, too often, uh, whether it's the city, whether it's the state, or whether it's the federal government, they do education to parents as opposed to doing education with parents. Parents are the most important voice in educating their children, and they need to be uh, at the first seat at the table, if you will, along with teachers. And because they haven't been, now they're saying enough is enough, we're pushing back, and this needs to change right now, today. And I applaud them for it. Right. Um, from my understanding, we also have um, Darkarian. Samples on the line with us. Do we have her on the line? Yeah, she's right here. No, okay, no, I guess we don't. We lost her. Do, okay, so we don't have her on the line right now. No. Okay, so oh, I, I think I just dropped that line. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's yeah. okay. So, so call back in. The number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Just out of curiosity, what's the practical effect of the students opting out? How do they, um, I guess, move up to the next grade if they decide not to take their te- the test, or if their parents decide that they're not going to take the test? Well, the parents have the option to request a portfolio assessment of their child, and what that means is we look at the child's overall performance throughout the school year, you know, writing pieces, uh, projects they have worked on. Parents have the right to request a portfolio assessment of their child in lieu of the state exam. So it's not, the state exam is just one measure uh, in terms of deciding if a child is promoted to the next grade. Uh, but there's a portfolio assessment that can be used and that many schools use and many teachers use, and parents are fine with that. So we do have another call on the line who I want to get to right now. So this is we have Valerie DiCaprio on the line who would like to let her voice be heard. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Good calling morning. in. Um, I just want to 
clarify a little bit. Um, we've had a dramatic increase in the number of refusals since they were first issued a couple of years ago. And I think that really is a reflection of parental opposition to Common Core as a whole, not just the test. If you do um, research into Common Core, you will see that there was absolutely very limited educator input into the standards, resulting in standards which are developmentally inappropriate for our youngest students. And then in a very ironic twist, what's happening is that graduating seniors will have um, very limited math and science curriculum as they leave, and they're going to be even further behind than they were previously. And if you, in fact, look up the creator of the math standards, Jason Zimba, he actually admits in a videotape testimony with Dr. Sandra Stotsky that these standards are not appropriate for a selective four-year university. So my concern is that we are essentially setting up a dual-class system. So for the students um, who come from very wealthy families who can afford to go to private schools that may not be aligned with Common Core, they're going to be the ones who are going to go on to these very um, white-collar positions, doctors, lawyers. And for everyone else in public school, they're not going to be able to compete for those same fields because of their public school education. Thank you so much for that. So I, I, a couple of things. And first of all, thank you so much for calling in and giving your comments. But I must say, it would behoove me if I did not say that some of the things you were saying were problematic. So a couple of things about Common Core. Common yeah. Core is a curriculum that was actually written and had contribution from multiple educators and administrators. So that was one thing. The second thing is the majority of private schools and pretty much every educating system in the world uses the Common Core standard. Third, Common Core emphasizes on critical thinking skills. And when you go to college, you have to think critically. A lot of students don't do well in college because they do not have that ability because they've only been used to answering questions. Next up, the people who gr you graduate using Common Core will be more prepared because your reading and writing skills will be a lot stronger because Common Core emphasizes reading and writing. You are correct in the fact that the Common Core math only goes to a certain level. Their, their argument for that is that if you master these standards by the 10th grade, 11th grade, then you can, you, you can use them to apply to other pieces of math. And I think everyone in this room, minus the engineer, will tell you that after fourth grade, I didn't really know what the hell I was using most of the math for anyway, and I don't use it now. Jason? No, I want to ask uh, Mr. Bowman a question concerning these parent protests. How much of this is actual ideological opposition to the Common Core? I mean, based on an um, objective observation of what it is and how it really is implemented throughout the system. And how much of it is really emotional? Because I'm getting the sense some of these parents, probably not all, and once again, this is anecdotal. This is not, you know, evidenced by anything, may be having a bit of resistance because their children aren't doing very well on these Common Core standards, and as you already cited, the alternative is the entire portfolio assessment, which may reflect more positively on their children. So I'm thinking there may be more of an emotional uh, issue here than just saying, well, I'm opposed to the Common Core and how it was uh, formed. I, well, I think, I'm sorry, was that question directed to me? Yes, Joel, you yes. can answer. Yeah, well, I, I think it's all of the above. I think there's definitely an emotional component to it, and I don't think that makes it a bad thing. Um, I also think there's an intellectual component and a political component, if you will, in terms of how the Common Core was formulated. I need, I need to co make one correction, correct you on one point. You mentioned the Common Core was a curriculum. The Common Core is not a curriculum. It's a set of standards. Those standards are aligned to the state assessments that are given every year in grades 3 through 8. Now, part of the, my problem with the, with the standards are the way we assess the standards. So 
we we test more in this country than the top performing countries in the world. Our kids have nine hours of testing every year and get grades three through eight. Special needs students and English language learners test even more than that. So that's one. Two, these assessments were put in place to close the so-called achievement gap, quote-unquote, quote, in air quotes, so-called achievement gap. You don't close an achievement gap or any gap by assessing more often. You close it by teaching, and you close it by meeting students where they are and meeting the academic, social, and emotional needs of students where they are. And that begins at birth. So until we close the gap from birth to age five and focus on executive function skills and the language gap that's happening in our concentrated poverty areas, we're never going to close any of these gaps. So testing as often as we do, we have 13 years of data that shows it doesn't work. Right. So we need to take a completely different approach. From my understanding, other countries don't test as often, but they do implement some type of national test so that we can assess the students and see where they stand in different regions and then, um, you know, funding in certain, and, and then give them for in funding accordingly. And they use so the let's higher take, let's standards? let's take a couple of examples here. So Finland has been top two, top three over the last few international assessments. They do no national assessments at all, okay? Canada assess, I believe, in the third and the sixth grade. Right. Um, and other, in other countries assess way less often. So let's say, for example, we assessed in the fourth and the seventh grade, and the assessments were 90 minutes a pop as opposed to nine hours a pop. The state can still gather the data that they so-called need to implement funding in areas where they feel the funding should be implemented. First and foremost, we're already underfunded as it is whether we take the state uh, assessments into account or not. Uh, uh, upper, upper middle class and upper class communities get more funding than city schools as a whole anyway. And like I said, for the last 13 years, they've had data and they've been providing, providing extra funding, but the achievement gap still remains because we're focused on the wrong thing. We're focused on assessing to death as opposed to quality teaching right. and pedagogy, which is where we need to focus. And even before that, our high-risk, at-risk communities need interventions beginning at conception from birth to age five so that when kids enter kindergarten, they're more prepared for school. Right now, they're not because the resources aren't being implemented there. They're being implemented and over-tested. Jamal, preach, man, preach. I do want to just give one second so we can have our other caller call in. She's calling all the way from Colorado, and I'm pretty sure it is not 1148 over there. So she might be a little bit sleepy. Um and I'm going to put her name. And she just told to me over the phone, so I'm kicking myself. Darcy Ann Samples? Whoa. Okay. Right yeah, on, we, ha- we have her on the line. So, Darcy Ann, thank you so much for calling in. Please let your voice be heard. Uh, good morning. I am calling from Colorado. And um, uh, I started opting my child out in fifth grade. What happened is we'd moved a lot. He got to fifth grade, and he was just totally stressed and, and had become pretty sad. And he, he told me he was worried about the state test and especially the writing portion of the test. He's a fifth-grade boy, and that's, you know, pretty common for that age. So the more nervous he got, the more I looked into the opt-out movement in Colorado. Um, I had been active in trying to reclaim education for several years already. So my husband wasn't really um, that interested in opting out. He said that, you know, there could be repercussions, and he was worried But he did agree that we could opt Isaac out that first year. Um, So when when we opted out at our school, we got so much pushback. We were told we would be taken to truancy court. So finally, I sent my my son to school, 
And they sat him down one-on-one in the principal's office trying to force him to take this test. Wow. And I couldn't be prouder of my 10-year-old son because he stood up to this coach principal and wrote one sentence and then shut the book. So it was really a very abusive situation. And right. um, it, it really it brought my husband on board 100%. And we are now very active opt-out promoters in right. the state of Colorado. And, you know, thank you so much for um, for calling in, Darcy, and I actually had a, a question about that, and, you know, I, I appreciate you caring and being so invested in your child in your children's lives to the point that, you know, you, you, you talked to them, you found out what their needs are, how they felt about this test, and then you took measure and you, um, you acted accordingly, but I have a question, and, you know, if you can answer that, that would be great, and we can also um, present it to Jamal as well. But if tests are so bad, how come people don't opt out of, like, the SATs or the ACT? Because like, we can't. But, no, but I'm saying, like, so if it, if it's, is, it, if it, is it standardized testing itself? Is it the test that's so bad? Because we have to take tests in order to measure and to, to be able to see how everyone's doing. I'd love to address that. Um, we're... I know some opt-out parents are opting out of everything, but I am an educator, and I have been for 29 years, and I teach special ed, and I teach in low-performing Title I schools. The tests that are the worst are these state assessments. They're, they're thrown together in a year. You know, the, the stories are horrific. Um, they're way above students' level, and the questions are completely confusing. So you can't even figure out what they want you to answer. And um, in addition to the poor quality of the test, we now have to take them on computer. And in my Title I school, we have one computer lab and a couple of carts. It is impossible to take these tests on campus with all these students and not interfere weeks of the school year for every child in the school. In and Worse yet, in Colorado, just this week, there were um, we had to cancel an entire day of our uh, science and social studies testing because the server went down at the Pearson uh, level. So it, it's just so ridiculous. I spent three hours hand-entering student names into groups to get ready for the park test. And There's a my park peers, test? For the park, P-A-R-C-C. Oh, okay. They do not link to our database, so every group must be hand-created. Every child must be hand-entered into the proper group. That just sounds like a really bad system. To be quite honest, I think that that may just be specific to Colorado. Every state obviously has their own way of implementing this. And so that's why you may see in some states the implementation process has been better than in other states. But I did want to get to some comments from Politically Preposterous. Uh, We got uh, three of them so far. Arthur says he would like to know what alternative solutions people have to offer because the system we had prior to Common Core sure wasn't a good one either. Rabina says she disagrees. She said we ruined a really good system that the average intelligence 
intelligence and knowledge of a person who graduated high school in her day, she said that was 1963, is compatible with that of a college grad today. The only thing that was wrong with public schools back then was that we skewed American history too much to make it seem that America was better than it actually was. And Michelle said the alternative is to put money back into education. She thinks that it's being education system is being robbed by the Republican Party and that more teachers and more teaching and more learning materials equals smaller classroom sizes and more attention given to each student and therefore better scores, I guess. Uh, I mean, personally, me, I just I see this as an implementation problem. I I think we have to hold our children to higher standards. and, And that may mean we have to implement the system better. But ultimately, you know, if we want to compete with the rest of the world, we may not need to assess our children as much, but we need them to think the way everybody else in the world is thinking. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Jamal, I know you want to give a response. And uh, some of that? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, first and foremost, there are 800 college and universities that don't require an SAT score. Secondly, the SAT score at many of our top university, universities are just one measure, looking at a holistic measure uh, to allow students to come into their schools. The other piece that you mentioned, you're exactly right. The way for us to compete with other countries and to stay ahead of other countries is to implement an interdisciplinary project-based curriculum that are aligned to the needs of our economy. Everyone knows that STEM drives our economy. If the state wants to assess something, why doesn't it assess STEM? Why doesn't it create a curriculum and standards aligned to the STEM needs so that students are prepared for jobs of the 21st century? Many of the jobs of the 21st century are unpredictable. We don't know what's coming. So students need to be adaptive, they need to be creative, and they need to think with an entrepreneurial mindset so that they can create the jobs of the 21st century. The way we do testing now, it narrows it. It forces teachers and schools to align curriculum to these narrow standards. The problem is entire standards. Yes, we need higher standards. We need holistic standards, and we need to measure them accordingly. And the last point, there's a difference between summative assessment and formative assessment. Assessment happens in schools all the time with teachers. When do we stop trusting teachers to assess students accordingly and, and, and help them get students to where they need to be? So it's not about, it's not about, it's not about higher standards. We ha- that's fine. We need higher standards. But we need kids who think divergently, creatively, laterally, and are prepared for jobs in the 21st century. So in terms of solutions, I mentioned interdisciplinary. I mentioned focusing on early childhood, birth to five, and closing those gaps there, and focusing on teacher pedagogy, relentlessly on teacher pedagogy. If we do that and align the curriculum to the economy, you'll see results, drastic results in one generation. Jamal, thank you so much for that, and thank you for calling in today. We really appreciate it. It sounds like the Bronx is a really good principal. Jason, I know you had a comment. No, no, I just wanted to recognize and, and definitely concur with Jamal. There's a motif that's that's being followed throughout this discussion with both Darcy Ann and Jamal. One is the aspect of investment, early investment, and the other being early intervention. Mm-hmm. It seems that no matter what the point is, whether it's assessment, whether it's um, additional funding, because the funding obviously is being put towards testing. Mm-hmm. If you don't equip those young children from an early age with an interest in those particular fields, which are going to make them economically competitive, I can tell you this as an engineer, this is what I do for a living. This is what I do for a living. I am one of the few American engineers, let alone one of the few people of color who I've ever been in a room with when it comes to doing multinational projects, large-scale projects. It's because we're not prepared to do any of this stuff. I know everyone talks about STEM and the app economy, but that's a very, very infinitesimal component of the, of the world economic structure in the sense of what will get you employed, what will make you competitive, and you really have to look at that and address where is it that we deviate. 
And I think that Jamal and uh, Darcy Ann was the name really recognized that in both the sense of, okay, we have to have that investment of our child in our children. Mm-hmm. As a parent, I say that as well from the, as a parent and um, as someone who is also a you know STEM person mm-hmm. saying, okay, what are we looking at? What are we identifying? How do we get those resources to the children? And then from there, how do we continue supporting those children to be, to be competitive? Yeah. To be competitive at the end of the day. So thank you so much for that, Jason. We had to wrap this up, guys. We went a little bit over time. Um, I just want to say very quickly, uh, I think I'm, I'm more so aligned with Jason and Jamal when it comes to the ideology on the structure of education. But I do want to say to the parents who are doing participating in these mass opt-outs because the test hurts their kids' feelings and makes them feel sad and makes them feel pressured. The world is a tough place, and we have an, an overabundance of people with no backbones and no and no resiliency because they got ninth-place trophies and they got hugged instead of taking tests. There is nothing wrong with taking a test. There's nothing wrong with challenging kids. There is nothing wrong with making them uncomfortable because by being uncomfortable is how you will eventually react and grow. And if you don't want to let your kids take a test that they may or may not need because it made them feel sad, then you should really take a look at yourself in the mirror. Because raise your hand if you – raise your hand if, as a kid, you enjoy taking tests. I didn't mind it because I Selena, usually be quiet. did well. You're a nerd. Oh, All right. <laughs> no one else raised your hand. Not even the engineer or the lawyer. I'm just thinking about that ninth-place trophy. I think my yeah. dad would have oh, no, I did very well on tests, too, but that yeah. didn't mean I liked taking it. Yeah, I hated taking tests. And you know what? If, there was, if this is really an issue about the, the problematic – like structure of tests, they'd be complaining about the SATs, the LSATs, and the GREs because we all know the SATs do not test what you know. Those tests are structured for people who had tutors and five hundred thousand dollars classrooms. Kaplan. Yes, that you don't learn anything. You learn how to how to answer questions to take those tests, and no one's complaining about that. They're mad because Billy came home and cried because he didn't know what two plus two was. I don't care about your tears. We'll be right back, guys. This is let your voice be heard. 